0: Life is full of
1: awesome what ifs and some
2: not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket
1: costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A representative said if you're more progressive, you might not want to come to Tennessee. Well, I think that Tennessee is known as the volunteer state. Tennessee is known and wants to be known as being a place that is open um, and that is welcoming. If you say that if you have a particular ideology, you're not wanted here, that's not good for business and that's not good for community and that's not good for democracy either.
2: I'm Quinta Juresic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 19th, 2023. Early this month, the Republican supermajority in the Tennessee House of Representatives voted to expel two Democratic lawmakers who had participated in a protest against gun violence on the House floor. The GOP also narrowly failed to expel a third Democrat. The two legislators who were expelled, Representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, have now returned to the Tennessee House. But the incident turned national attention on Tennessee's struggling democracy. To discuss, I spoke with Summer Ali, research professor of political science and law at Vanderbilt University and co-chair of Vanderbilt's Project on Unity and American Democracy, and Seku Franklin, professor of political science at Middle Tennessee State University, and the author, with Ray Block, of the book Losing Power, African Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. They explained how the expulsions should be understood as part of a larger process of democratic backsliding and misgovernment in Tennessee, and how that democratic backsliding is itself part of a larger trend of democratic erosion at the subnational as well as the national level. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 19th Democratic Decline in Tennessee. I want to just start with the basics and make sure we have everything down to kind of set the table before we get deeper into the discussion. What exactly happened at the Tennessee state legislature on April sixth summer? Let me start with you and then Seiko anything you'd like to add?
1: Yes, I actually think it's important to go back to the Monday before so the Monday before there was a mass shooting at the Covenant School in Green Hills in Nashville, Tennessee, which is Green Hills is a neighborhood in Nashville and Seven people um, lost their lives that day, six innocent civilians, three children, the age of nine, uh, a janitor and two teachers, one the head of the school and the other a substitute teacher. It was a horrific massacre and it left Nashville shaken at its core. And we were all grieving that moment. Um, And trying to also figure out a way forward. And also there, I would say that there was a lot of, there was, there was grief. There was also anger. um, There was also feelings of shame and confusion and really trying to sort through whose responsibility is it so that we prevent mass shootings from continuing to happen in our home um, and in our country And then all of a sudden we felt that a lot of people felt that there was basically the state legislature decided to orchestrate a circus in the middle of a funeral. And you had a lot of people um, rightfully protesting the gun laws, the federal gun laws and the state gun laws in our country and in our state, which were affected by um, and demanding change. And calling for change and change, which quite frankly, we haven't seen in Tennessee in decades. We haven't seen uh, true gun reform in our state in decades. And, and, um, I also just want to say, like, there's, again, this pushback against the federal laws and the state laws, which are contributing to this problem. And people are rightfully outraged and angry and demanding solutions from the legislature. At this time um, we had while the while the legislature was in session, um three members of the legislature took basically center stage in the well um, with a bullhorn and um joined the protesters and led a part of the protest movement in the in the body in the well of the state legislature. Um tensions were very high and tensions were escalating. It's a very tense moment. And uh Speaker Sexton uh, after about, f- uh, this was going on for 40 to 45 minutes, and then Speaker Sexton uh, basically called security, had them escorted out of the well, and then escalated the matter even further by um, calling for ex- uh, the three to be expelled.
2: Yeah, Seiko, let me let me pass the baton to, to you. Can you pick up this story? What happened next?
3: Well, what happened, well, I think to go back to that Monday, there was I think some lawmakers after the shooting um, – so typically what happens in Tennessee is that they have uh, – they're in session four days a week, and and most of the committee meetings happen on Tuesday and, and Wednesday. And then on Monday, uh, when lawmakers come back into town, Monday afternoon to Monday, Monday evening, quite frankly, um, they have uh, the House and the Senate meet to pass full bills, and then on Thursday morning they do the same thing. So that Monday night before, there was – Concern about among lawmakers, uh, primarily Democrats, that there was an indifference to the shooting that happened earlier in the day. So then, the next day, then you see the, you see the protests, and then you see the announced exposures. I think you know, for the larger audience, I, I do want to also lift up that you know, as as great as the protest in the in the well of the house was, the larger kind of um, ethos of that moment was the youth. Of Nashville high school students, in particular, rose up and marched on the Capitol Hill, and I think that created an ambiance and 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 encouraged among lawmakers that took 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 to the well to to protest. So there's there's two things: there's the protest in the well, but there's also this kind of burgeoning kind of youth youth uprising that's taking place that took place on that day. Um, With youth, their parents, some teachers, some activists, primarily high school students. And then afterwards, the reaction by Republican lawmakers was to expel those three lawmakers. And then that's when you get this kind of crisis that takes place.
1: And Sekou, I would just add, too, that's one of the reasons I completely agree. And that's one of the reasons I was saying that the, um, the, the lawmakers, um, three of the lawmakers joined the existing protests. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. They weren't leading it. They were joining an existing protest that was being led by youth. So let's talk about the
2: lawmakers who were targeted for expulsion. Um, the the Tennessee Three, as they've come to be known. So this is uh, representatives Justin Jones, representative Justin Pearson. Um, those two lawmakers were actually expelled. And then uh, representative Gloria Johnson, uh, who was not expelled, I believe, by, by uh, a very extremely narrow margin. One vote. Yeah. So so who who are these lawmakers? What should our listeners know about them and what's the significance of their specifically being targeted with expulsion and in the case of Representatives Jones and Pearson actually being expelled?
3: Well, the Tennessee 3, I mean Justin Jones, most of us know him from his days as he's been a long-time activist in Nashville even though he's he's fairly young and in many respects a kind of a uh, uh he's kind of you know as a non-lawmaker he Routinely traveled to the legislature since his early years at Fisk University to protest everything from photo identification laws to other kinds of extreme measures that they, that lawmakers push. So most of us, I think, you know, in Nashville know Justin Jones. And Justin Pearson, um, was elected in a special election out of Memphis. He replaced uh, Barbara Cooper, who died in office. And Barbara Cooper was a, was a fantastic lawmaker uh, herself. And it's one of the things I think in the framing of the kind of Tennessee three is that it's it's overlooking uh, previous forms of resistance and protests, maybe in smaller ways or quieter ways. And, and the role of black women also in layering mm-hmm. foundational kind of resistance in, 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 in the Tennessee legislature that's largely been ignored and in many respects, uh, rendered invisible in this kind of broader conversation. Uh, but Justin Pearson had a I don't know him. But he had, a, I heard of his reputation, he had a, a kind of a fantastic reputation, leading, leading an effort against the pipeline, uh, which was an effort by an energy company to build a pipeline in inner city Memphis. And, uh, and there was a coalition of activists that he co-founded that really pushed back against that. So he kind of came into the legislature uh, through a special election halfway through as, as a with the reputation of being um, a community organizer, a kind of prophetic figure coming out of Memphis. And then, and then Gloria Johnson um, is a lawmaker from Knoxville, former teacher who herself experienced um, an incident of gun violence in her school, I believe, as a teacher, and was well known among many progressive activists. And she has been repetitively targeted by, by, by the, frankly by the Republican Party over a number of years, including including the most recent effort to uh, draw her out of her district. Um, and and her her and another Knoxville lawmaker, a black lawmaker, kind of worked out an agreement. But she's been kind of in the crosshairs of, of many of the Republicans out of East Tennessee for, for quite some time. So all three had this had previous reputations of of social activism, movement activism, and really kind of being at the at the, at the on the front lines of, of giving voice to to many of these concerns in, in Tennessee.
1: I would just add also that Pearson, Justin Pearson, is a known also environmental activist too. I think that's that's important and and um had been working closely with Vice President Al Gore on that. And also Representative Jones I, I would say Seku, I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but he was one of the people who joined the protest to remove the Nathan Bedford Forest bust yes. in the state capitol to have it removed.
3: Yeah, probably one of the one of the principal persons that, that got that yeah. removed, yes.
2: Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest, for, for those who don't know, being uh, one of the founders of the KKK. Um, so that's very significant, obviously. So let's talk about then what actually happened with the expulsion vote. As, as we've said, uh, Representatives Jones and Pearson were actually expelled. Representative Johnson was not. Uh, she later gave an interview where she was asked why she thought that was, and she said uh it's probably because of the color of my skin. She's a, a white woman, the other two are uh, young black men. I'm wondering if you could both talk about the expulsions in context of sort of the larger issues of racial politics in Tennessee and the Tennessee legislature which you've you've both touched on so far. Um I don't know Seiko if you want to go first.
3: Yeah, um absolutely. Um so when the expulsion was uh, when it was announced that is the expulsion debacle um, I think I think some of the Republicans probably knew that it was going to be a debacle based on some kind of previous reporting, which is another story I guess um, but uh, I think with Gloria Johnson I, I don't I'm not entirely sure that race as a as an essentialist argument as a as a as a kind of singular argument is why she was not expelled and just a couple of things I believe Justin Pearson was in the room because his expulsion vote was last. So he may be cast a deciding vote, I think, if you're to tally it up. At least that's kind of the story coming out of that. She kind of came in, I think, where race maybe did play a factor in helping Gloria Johnson out race and in, in class, social class, is that she came in with with basically two attorneys, and both of whom had a significant amount of experience in the legislature and really knew how to piece together arguments on behalf of Gloria Johnson. So that's kind of where she kind of, was able to have an advantage versus the other the other two young young African American lawmakers, and I think when the Republicans went in to the expulsion vote vote vote, um, based upon some previous reporting, um, they had a consensus that all three would be expelled, mm-hmm. and 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 instead a few of the lawmakers decided to vote to keep Gloria Johnson in there. So um, I think the expulsion vote is there's many different sides to that story. I don't know how Summer feels about it, but. Um, part of it, but I'll, I'm not sure that race is entirely the single explanation as to why she was saved versus the other two.
1: I just wanted to say, you know, one of the things that struck me as a lawyer and, and, and say, you know, you and I've worked on some cases together, actually, where I was thinking about this, um, this parallel is that, you know, Gloria Johnson had representation. She had proper and appropriate representation, and she had access to that. And that weighed in her favor, Um, And it really became, for me, a microcosm and almost a mirror of what we see go on in our courtrooms here almost every single day, which are um, far too many people of color who don't have the resources or don't have the access to proper representation to be able to take advantage of due process of law. Uh, And that we saw that play out right here in front of our eyes um, during the expulsion hearings.
3: Yeah, I mean, you put it better than I did. And so I think, like, the point is race played a part of it, race and class, but in yep. a different way than I think it's being narrated.
1: Exactly. I fully
3: totally agree. The part of it was she came in with two attorneys, both of whom had significant amount of experience as lawmakers and um, understood how to get those votes on their side. And I, and even with all that, um, I, I'm hearing that Justin Pearson, he cast the, the vote for her because his expulsion was last. So he was in the room that he was able to cast a vote for her. So had he not been in the room, had his vote been second, had his expulsion been second, she might have actually been expelled.
1: That's very important. That's a really important point. And I think for me, one of the questions that I think we have to ask is why did Justin Pearson and Justin Jones not have access to proper counsel?
2: Yeah, so I will confess, I hadn't realized that the expulsion process was, you know, had a sort of a due process component, Um, you know, that, that this was a process in which you could bring in legal representation. So it might be interesting to dig into that for a moment. I mean, what are the criteria for expulsion? I know um I think this is Representative Jones gave a, a very stirring speech on the floor before he was expelled, walking through all of the misconduct that had taken place in the legislature without anyone being expelled and sort of driving home uh, how political this seemed. But how does the expulsion process work and why was this aberrant in that context?
3: Well, I think, I mean, Summer so, probably has more experience in this. I think there's ambiguity in this flexibility to interpret what is an ex- an offense or mm-hmm. what are serious offenses that one could be expelled from. There's language that talks about disorderly conduct. Um, mm-hmm. That can be widely interpreted because uh, the legislature has been full of people who have been involved in corruption being investigated um, for, for criminal activities, engaged in and. In, in, and uh, adverse behavior, rude to colleagues. Um, in my in my research, talking to African American women, uh, some talked about how how rude they they've been treated uh, in terms of the legislature. And even with all of that, you know, we saw the expulsion of House members. I do want to lift up that Katrina Robinson, um, who was being investigated on on, on federal crimes. Um, she was expelled as a state senator uh, last year, and um, as a first black woman from Memphis, as a first person. Uh, ever to be expelled in the in the state senate, despite the fact that there's been a wide variety of abuses on, on that side of the aisle as well. So, but there's there's ambiguity and there's and it's up for wide interpretation as to what is an is a defense or what are a series of offenses that one can be expelled for.
1: Yeah, just to add, I think that's right. I think this is a disproportionate application and a select application of the rules, and they're they're um, strategically vague. And so when that happens, what you see is picking and choosing rather than what many people would call a fair process. And so you get to decide what is considered disorderly conduct versus what is considered orderly conduct. And then who makes that decision, who makes that determination, and and when does that determination become politicized to benefit a political agenda and to harm another an an, an opinion that you disagree with. And the other question too, for me is what does this do for um, debate and for the ability to have a fruitful debate with diverse opinions? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think that's, that's really important. And I I want to Take that opportunity to kind of zoom out a little bit here and talk about what this means for the state of Tennessee's democracy and what it signifies about the state of Tennessee's democracy. Um, so both Representatives Jones and Pearson have now been reinstated to the legislature. Um, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, I could say, all right, then, you know, no, no harm, no foul, they're back in, everything's fine. But of course, you know, there, there's also been a, a great deal written about why this expulsion maneuver was concerning for the state of Tennessee's democracy, both in, in the sense that it might have crossed a new line, um, and in the sense of of what it says about what you've both been pointing to, you know, the, the sort of existing struggles within Tennessee. How should we understand these chain of events from the point of view of the democratic integrity of Tennessee? Summer, let me go to you first.
1: Yeah, I think there's a serious trust deficit between Tennesseans and the state legislature, the government, and democracy as a whole right now, and I'd also say the federal government too. Um, so we really do have a crisis moment right here of where people are not trusting the process, they're not trusting the system because they don't think it's fair. They think that it's corrupt. And they think that it's hypocritical. And they also don't feel that it's outcomes oriented. They don't feel that it is solving problems that people are suffering from and a lot of different problems that people are suffering from, both in the rural areas and in the urban areas alike. I think people feel that there is uh, that the state legislature and the government, rather than Trying to find a way forward that fosters a shared future that's unifying, um, that's problem solving oriented is more trying to drive a wedge further and further between Tennesseans, um, and between the urban and rural environments of the state. And so I think that this, again, I think there's a lot of confusion. If you're not an, if you're not a legal expert or a policy expert or you follow or you, you have the time to follow politics closely, and many people don't have the time. And you're watching and you're seeing this, people are left scratching their heads and putting in you know throwing their hands up in the air on both sides of the aisle of saying, "This isn't working for us. We're getting poorer." Where we feel like there is less and less access to resources that we need in order to move up in the world, and um, we don't see any leadership that's creating a pathway forward that we feel like we can get behind and that we can trust. And so, what what you are seeing here is a disconnect, a very serious disconnect, um, and also not a reflection of the values that many Tennesseans do share, and so and those democratic values too. And people are feeling more and more powerless. Uh, as well. Um, and I think that powerlessness can lead to dangerous levels of hopelessness and helplessness. And that is not good for democracy. Uh, so I think the concept that's losing right now and that's being hurt is the concept of democracy. If we return back to the democratic values and principles, which includes robust debate, um, which allows for a, a set of rules and principles that is fairly applied across the aisle and proportionately applied to the offense, um, that, for example, when, when somebody does um, commit an infraction, with there's a, there's a there's a willingness to observe that democracy includes not only building consensus towards solution and resolution for a way forward, but also mercy. And justice for all; uh, these concepts, which are not being demonstrated right now, which is one of the reasons again that many, many people are in this state are losing confidence in the democratic process and system. And they're saying, "Is this democracy, or is this populism, or is this authoritarianism?" Because what all, all that we know right now is that whatever it is, it's not working.
3: There's some undemocratic parts of Tennessee politics that that should have been fixed decades ago. But when you have uh, a kind of political extreme anchor that's in the legislature, um, then it makes things more complicated. There's a supermajority control of of one party, the Republican Party, and um, they could take a vote without any person being in a room from the Democratic Party. Amendments do voice votes. Jones and Pearson, if they stay there for 10 years and nothing changes politically in terms of the party balance, all their legislation could be blocked with the exception of memorializing resolutions. So it's it's a very very challenging environment to be in. Um, in addition, we also have at the administrative and bureaucratic level some challenges too. Our attorney general, our constitutional officers, secretary of state, comptroller, treasurer, all are all appointed. And in the last decade or so, the legislature has enhanced its power in the appointment process. Um, and in particular, at least you know from Af- for African Americans, you know the secretary of state comptroller have engaged in kind of a muscular attack from from the standpoint of African-Americans on Mm -hmm. democracy of African-Americans. They've they've gone after Mason, Tennessee, an all-black town. Uh, They've gone after Tennessee State University. That is a state comptroller's office, comptroller general's office. Secretary of State has kind of, uh, in a very kind of surgical way, attacked uh, voter access. In fact, Justin Jones was one of the main individuals, you know, going back years that have that lifted up these issues that the Secretary of State was doing from photo ID laws to purge to 2019, um, they tried to criminalize voter registration efforts by nonprofits and civil rights groups. And fortunately, a court case stopped that from really uh, taking place and occurring. All those officers are appointees. So if you look at Tennessee versus Texas versus Florida, many of those administrative offices, those bureaucratic officers, those constitutional officers, are actually elected, whereas Tennessee, we appoint we appoint those members. All of our election commissions are partisan, and across all all that all counties, uh, because whoever has control of the legislature gets partisan control of the election commissions. We just this legislature just passed a, a law uh, requiring partisan school board elections, mm-hmm. probably in response to the so called anti critical race race theory kind of issue. And then, if you think about other things, the Tennessee sits in the 6th in the sixth, sixth Appellate Circuit. A lot of things that occur in Tennessee, lawmakers feel they have the backing of this kind of appellate circuit that is that's typically conservative. And then for Nashville, it's been very devastating because our state legislature has honed in on Nashville from uh, basically an attempt, or I think a successful attempt to eliminate our tourist development district. They passed a law reducing our council from 40 to 20. Now there's a debate right now about taking over our sports authority, our sports authority airport, board, airport board. And, and on top of the fact that the the governor passed a, a voucher bill that, that no lawmaker wanted. So they reduced the voucher. They only limited it initially to Nashville and Memphis, taking out tens of millions of dollars from those cities to advance a voucher program. Just so there's so much stuff going on in Tennessee as, a, and, and those lawmakers, what you saw was essentially the, the, in many respects was was an outgrowth of all that all that we described. They reflected that kind of that kind of righteous indignation to all that we described in terms of in terms of democracy.
1: I just want to say, you know, also on the targeting of Metro Nashville government, this happened also um, specifically around COVID. So um, Speaker Sexton was a key architect of a special session of the legislature to pass a bill banning municipalities within Tennessee for establishing face masks or COVID-19 requirements. And at the time that this happened, there were 1.3 confirmed cases, close to 20% of the entire population of Tennessee. So one of the things that people, again, felt in terms of the hypocrisy of this is there's a line about states' rights being um, respected uh, in the republic. But what about the recognition of city and county Government authority and shouldn't the same principles apply there? Um, and then also right now there's a debate as to whether there's again, Speaker Sexton and others are pushing for Tennessee to reject all federal education funds, which counts for 20% of our K through twelve education funding. And when asked about where and how we will make up for that 20% loss, there are no answers. Which further contributes to why people in the state are feeling disillusioned with the current form of democracy that we're practicing. I feel there's an abuse of power and that the environment is a very punitive one. Dare to speak up, dare to question, dare to go against. What um, the supermajority thinks, because it'll come at a cost, and it and for some and for far too many, it'll come at a very high price.
3: And with that, with that also too, you know, you have the Tennessee did not expand Medicaid or create a parallel program as a result of Obamacare, and or Arkansas created a a a parallel program by a Republican governor. Um, I think North Carolina just announced it, so that's that's cost Tennessee roughly about twenty billion dollars, and we're. More recent reports about hospital closures in rural rural communities. We're talking about maybe forty percent of potential hospital closures in many of these communities because of the loss of funding that would have insured three hundred thousand persons. And then and then what happened was that when when Governor Bill Haslam uh, attempted to propose a parallel program in conversation with health advocates, not just health advocates, but a conversation with health advocates who are working with veterans and seniors, then the state legislature passed a law that said. That you, the governor can't do that unless it's approved by the state legislature. So it's and that's cost that's cost a lot of folks their lives in Tennessee. And, and as 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 great as as great as the protests were in the past week, your, your audience should know this. There there are bad laws are passed last last week, both out of yeah. committee and also on the house floor. A law attacking faculty and persons of color, students of color. Women's groups at on college campuses a so-called divisive concepts as a code word. Bill we had a a bill that uh, came one step forward to abolishing the civilian review boards and oversight boards in Memphis and Nashville. Despite the fact that of the Tyree Nichols killing, we had some other bills around 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 incarceration. Right, and, and and this is what I want to say that none of the legislative committees, the legislative committees are not controlled by people from Nashville and Shelby County. Like, like, I think one Memphis Shelby County lawmaker, a Republican, may be the co chair of a committee, very conservative. But all the legislative, the entire legislative process is controlled by people who are not from the two hub cities uh, of Tennessee, where, where, where Justin Pearson and Justin Jones uh, come out of. They're from rural communities and Knoxville.
1: Yeah. So just to say too, so these, this legislation um, is having fatal consequences. People are getting hurt and people are experiencing um, serious pain and from issues that are solvable but are instead of being solved and, and, and pain being alleviated, they're constantly being politicized and unnecessarily further complicated
0: My data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: To take a look at, at what you're both saying, I want to try to synthesize it, um, and you can tell me if, if this sounds right. So it sounds to me like, like what you're both saying is that you know these, these expulsions need to be understood not as you know a sui generis, moment, um, but rather as part of a much, much larger pattern of a sort of failure of democracy in Tennessee that we see both in the sense of limitations on political participation in terms of gerrymandering and top-down control, but also in the sense that the Tennessee government is not providing and helping people, which then sort of contributes to this downward spiral because, summer, as you were saying, people don't have faith in or trust the government. Is that a fair description of of what you all feel about this?
1: Yes, I think absolutely on the pattern piece as well. And I just wanted to highlight one more piece that gets to one of the questions you asked previously, and that is something that took place this past year. And that's when Representative John Ray Clemens tried to honor International Holocaust Remembrance Day inside the House chambers. And a few minutes into Clemens' speech, which was denouncing anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism, Speaker Sexton uh, abruptly interrupted Clemens um, and reminded him that his honoring of International Holocaust Remembrance Day did not fall within the meeting guidelines. And so the objection was that Representative Clemens' honoring was being made during the welcoming and honoring portion of the calendar, which broke the House rules. This is just another repeated example of how the House rules are being applied in a way to silence conversation and even honoring of um, Holocaust survivors. So I think that that gets at what kind of a culture and what kind of an environment are we fostering here? Are we fostering an environment that is free and that promotes freedom through democracy? Or are we promoting an environment instead that's oppressive?
3: yeah and they they can and they can literally silence they can cut off their mics <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean I yeah you know i i have been a little bit uh bothered by some of the national stories on Tennessee because he the t- national stories, which i it's almost like executive producers are taking stories off the shelf and then repurposing them for Tennessee, and they're almost like a old country western movie where the sheriff is on one side and the villain is on another side. And they draw yes. their guns, and then the hero wins, and everybody celebrates and goes home. And it's like, look, they took real votes last week. Yeah. Next year, the year after, the year after, the year after they're gonna take real votes um, that really have impact on folks. And what there is a there is a political extremism that's anchoring mm-hmm. a lot of this, and 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 it's it's not a partisan thing to say. And I just want to make sure I point this out because Tennessee does have a history of bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. We have a history. I think Dan Balz, or a Washington Post reporter, came to Tennessee a decade or so ago and said, or maybe seven, or eight years ago, and said, "It seems like the, the bipartisan consensus that defined Tennessee seems to have disappeared." So what we've seen is is a shift away from that towards a, a certain kind of political extremism that seems to be anchoring a, a, a lot of a lot of what we're seeing going on. And and I think and and to to deal with that means it just can't be about Nashville and, and Shelby County Memphis but it has to be a lot of things in between in between that space and I think just the media framing of of Tennessee and the legislature is missing something it's, it's missing mm-hmm. the the role of black women
1: absolutely and what they
3: face historically uh one of the lawmakers that I interviewed they wouldn't let it they wouldn't call on her some years ago so she brought a mop to the floor and had to wave it to get to get heard, um, the levels of disrespect, the, the discourteous behavior that many black women faced uh, and others, um, oftentimes n- doesn't fit within this narrative of of young people, uh, you know, new 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 rising young people resisting, you know, <laughs> and and also there is there is, even 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 with Gloria Johnson there is and my I, friends I, there is in Tennessee Tennessee does have a history of of white working-class progressivism, if if I can use that word, progressivism.
1: The Highlander Folk School was founded here. Yeah,
3: yeah. I don't know if that's the right word, but but multiracial working-class alliances in Tennessee. Uh, So, which, you know, if you could, you know, again, I think if if you frame the Gloria Johnson dispute in a kind of binary black versus white, there is some of that, as Summer stated, with legal representation. But the other, other story behind that is this kind of multiracial, cross-racial, you know, people of goodwill, kind of working class coalitions and alliances that are rooted in Tennessee for decades that often are often overshadowed. And I think Gloria Johnson represents that, that tradition, um, as well. So there's a lot of things that are missing in Tennessee as, as we move forward. And then, you know, a summer could talk about this as well. We have tremendous growth in middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I mean we're one of the high growth communities in terms of population growth in, in the in the in the country, and I think lawmakers are concerned about what that growth means in terms of creating uh new voters uh diverse voters, not just race but uh youth income, and a whole range of things what that means for Tennessee moving forward,
1: yeah, Summer, I'd love to hear you talk about that, yeah, thanks. I just wanted to add yeah, absolutely on the bipartisan history piece um and that is and this is going to say Q's research around uh, how Nashville was the first city to desegregate in the Jim Crow South, which led to the desegrega- desegregation of over 200 cities, which I know, you. how many cities exactly?
3: In terms of a desegregation? Um, I'm not sure, but Nashville was the first city of this size to right. desegregate its downtown sector, which was its major economic hub.
1: And the reason i 'm saying that that too, in terms of bipartisan support, I think that we do have this history here, and I do in terms of leading in in right directions and there 's an opportunity here that we don 't want to lose sight of because of the simplification of the framing, and the opportunity is for Tennessee to take a lead on um, gun violence reform. And so sometimes when I say that, people will look at me um, as if I'm um, as, as wondering if I'm okay. But I absolutely believe that. And so I think that kind of gets us back to of thinking about what would that look like? How can we thread that needle? Um, and how can we, because there is consensus, again, there's consensus across the state that The political environment is not working for everyday Tennesseans and something has to change and something has to give. Um, And people aren't interested in further politicizing these points of these conversations, even though the national narrative is a very polarizing and a very politicizing one. And so I think also this is one of the fastest grow. We are sitting in one of the fastest growing areas in the country. And I do will say as well that many rural, that is creating some tensions because with rural parts of Tennessee because they don't feel like they're benefiting from this growth. And so we also have to address that piece of it if we're going to grow in a healthy direction where we don't have further uh, economic disparities created. And, you know, I like to say Nashville's a tale of three cities. It's the new Nashville, the old Nashville, and the left behind Nashville. And you're seeing that and you're seeing this. And so I think our growth has to be healthy. It has to be inclusive. It has to be an inclusive. It has to be inclusive of all of Nashville and all of Tennessee. And what does that look like? How, how do we work better with Memphis as well? Like, these are some of the conversations that we need to be having that we're not having right now. And so, but on growth, I think that this is something we can't overlook too because the, when this has been mentioned to, our, to to members of our super majority, um, one person who's, a, who's a, a, a representative said, if you're more progressive, you might not wanna come to Tennessee. Well, I think that no, Tennessee is known as the volunteer state. Tennessee is known and wants to be known as being a place that is open um, and that is welcoming. If you say that if you have a particular ideology, you're not wanted here, that's not good for business and that's not good for community and that's not good for democracy either.
2: So I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about what's what you've been describing in Tennessee in a, a larger context of what's been happening in other states as well, without you know, m- moving our focus too much. So, in, in preparing for this podcast, I was reading some work done by Jacob Grumbach, who listeners might be familiar with. He's a political scientist at the University of Washington and put together a system to basically create numerical rankings for the strength of each state's democracy. And as of 2018, Tennessee had the absolute lowest ranking. Uh, And notably, what's interesting is that it was in the middle of the pack in 2000, but rapidly went downhill since then. And obviously, Tennessee is unique in that it sort of bottomed out in 2018, but which is as uh, recent as the data is. But this sort of phenomena of rapid democratic decline primarily in states that are controlled by Republicans, is something that Grumbach identifies across the country. You see it in Wisconsin, for example, in North Carolina. So I'm curious for both your, your take on that and, and how you think we should understand Tennessee, you know, and Tennessee's sort of democratic deficit within this larger story of democratic decline on the state level. Summer, let me start with you.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I would say, um, it's actually, um, sadly and unfortunately fitting a global pattern because democracy is backsliding considerably around the world, not only in states, um, like Tennessee and Wisconsin, but we're seeing it. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Um, and I think that to understand why, I mean, there's the generalizations. It's a complex analysis, um, which would probably be an entire podcast, would require an entire podcast. So I'm going to try to think about how to just sort of like summarize a few of those thoughts as to why. One piece of it is corruption. Um, Tennessee, sadly, and it doesn't have to remain this way. And as a local, as a, as a, somebody who was born and raised here, it breaks my heart to say this, but, um, we are also ranked as one of the most corrupt states in the country. And my hope is that in this next decade, um, uh, we will be one of, we will be known for our transparency and for having rooted out corruption. Um, but currently, um, corruption and, and straying from democratic norms and principles go hand in hand um the same thing goes for hypocrisy and that contributes to the trust deficit that we're talking about and that we've been talking about so this, this downsliding that's happening, we are uh, absolutely not immune from. And I also think that part of it is because you're seeing the stifling of debate. This is what we've been talking about consistently for the past 45 minutes here, is that when you just stif- when you, when you stifle that, and when you also have oppressive and uh, disproportionate responses to offenses happening um, as well, which we see, for example, now graffiti uh, on state property has moved from being a dis- misdemeanor in Tennessee to being a felony. The same thing goes for camping on state property as well. We're moving in that direction. Also, if you're charged with burglary, um, you have no access to parole now in Tennessee. So these types of measures that we're seeing are affecting what is considered a healthy uh, legal system and, re- and trust in the r- and rule of law, which are the pillars for democracy. Um, and I think Sekou, and I just want to highlight something that he said too, and that's the number of people that we have in very important and influential positions that are Appointed and are not elected. So I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I do know that um, we are in the bottom percentile in the country right now for the number of people um, in high-level positions that are elected rather than appointed. So all of these are contributing factors to why we are currently ranked last in terms of the strength of our democracy.
3: Yeah, I I would add to that, particularly, do I start with the the latter point that some are raised about the appointment process. And and, and and some of the appointees, again, the statutory power that they have is unclear. What makes the comptroller decide that they're going to potentially dissolve the board of Tennessee State University, the, the largest HBCU, historically Black college and university between Jackson, Mississippi, and Atlanta, Georgia? Right now, we're dealing with a situation in rural West Tennessee where um, they're building a $5 billion Ford plant and mm-hmm. Tennessee the Department of Transportation, Tdot, as it's called, is basically bringing black landowners to court to take over their land because it's a gateway to that to that facility. So, what makes that? Who, where does that latitude come from? Um, so, and then our institutions are are are, are weak, quite frankly. Um, we have a four four to four and a half month to five month legislative session. Our legislature legislature that means we have a two year session, but each year. They're in session for four to four and a half months. On average, lawmakers make about twenty five thousand dollars a year, and then all the bills that are being advanced are crowdsourced, They're fast tracked and so grassroots organizations and advocacy groups that have no money have very little chance to wade into that process in a in a in a way that that brings integrity to that, to that process. I think you know two things. I'll state state in general. There's been a broader disinvestment. By, I think, uh, philanthropists, donors into places like Tennessee, into places like Arkansas, into places like Kentucky, into solidly red states that are not necessarily competitive. And um, when that disinvestment has taken place, then it's essentially allowed kind of extremism to flourish, I think. And, uh, and I think um, and, and then also, you know, just in terms of the larger framing of Tennessee, I think the larger framing of places like Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky. Places that are solidly red, the larger framing is kind of out of whack. Because, again, when, these, when the protests in this kind of crisis occurred in the last couple of weeks, I know a lot of folks from outside of Tennessee came in. But if you've never operated in a state that has a supermajority control in a four and a half month legislative session, legislature calendar year, in which every single bill that one party proposes, one side proposes can be voted down in which amendments could be added to bills. If you've never gotten down in that kind of political environment, then it's very hard to understand what that looks like. That can't be resolved by reinstating, you know, two lawmakers who were expelled. It has to be resolved and addressed through a multi-tiered, multi-layered organizing advocacy effort. That has to span over, 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 over a few years. And so my fear is, is that when the lawmakers were reinstated, you know, we won, everybody goes home and they were going to be back to, you know, where we were before, you know, three weeks ago.
1: And who pays the price and who's going to pay the price?
3: Samar, thank you for the mentioning. There is going to be political revenge retribution. and retribution. And and that's what outside folks, though, are not necessarily aware of. Every single legislation. To take revenge every single bill that those lawmakers propose could be stopped but the idea that the Republicans are gonna just be okay they've been reinstated we've been embarrassed nationally mm-hmm. everything is all right is 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 fallacy when all the national folks go home when the media has attention to the next shooting or something else political retribution and revenge and that legislature is going to occur
1: yeah and I wanted to add on that cq too. like for example with these nat- some of the national organizations that have been intrigued by our events over the past several weeks when some of them have been asked to help strengthen civil society and strengthen um our democracy many of some far too many of them let me say that have responded who that have have major budgets to contribute to be giving resources to Tennesseans to to do the work that we've been talking about um they'll say well that's not a part of our strategic you're not a, you're not located in a state that's a part of our strategic plan and so I think that people need to reflect there in terms of what is their responsibility um, of helping us solve these problems rather than using us as a continuous place to watch um, drama, political drama unfold. And, and I'd also say, going back to your original question of in terms of our democracy, uh, to kind of summarize what I felt like Siku was also talking about, and that is like we lack checks and balances and checks and balances are very important to the health of a democracy. We're lacking that right now. Every healthy political system requires it regardless of which party you belong to, regardless of what kind of a human being you are. We know from human history that we work best when checks and balances are working well. And then I think also we have to, we can't have this conversation um, about the health of our democracy without, um, and why it's in decline without talking about money and politics. And also going back to the Citizens United case, which has also had a dramatic impact on, on our democracy. And then also the waning of respect for the Establishment Clause um, and what it means. And then I would just add one more thing to get back to why democracy right now is backsliding but doesn't have to continue to. And one of the reasons is because of the impact and the effects of social media um, and how we organize and how how the legal system has fallen behind um, in its ability to regulate effectively the advancements of social media, AI, and technology while still making sure that our First Amendment is working as um, strongly as uh, legally possible.
3: And just to point out something that Samar said, that our our legislature is perfecting or has perfected the ability to punch up and punch down. They can push down through preemptive powers, um, old constitutional theory, where they can preempt laws that are executed or carried out by cities or passed by cities from living wage, anti-wage death laws, uh, laws um, that deal with policing issues. They've done that here in Tennessee or trying to do that in Tennessee. And they have also, as Marseille said, can punch up where this kind of new phenomenon where they're saying, we may not get one point. We may not want $1.8 billion worth of federal funds. Right. We, we we don't want a $20 dollars $20 worth of med from the Center Center for Medicare and Medicaid to expand Medi- Medicare. Our, our legislature just decided not to. Our just decided to reject HIV funding. That's mm-hmm. going to affect thousands of people's access to to healthcare or medicine. So they, our legislature, has perfected this idea. They're kind of almost creating what I guess another author said a subnational state um, in places like Tennessee, Texas, Florida. Arkansas and Kentucky. But I think where Tennessee's story fits and is that to really, I think for the national audience, let's, let's focus on the Mid-South. Let's focus on states like Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas, states that are not competitive in presidential elections, solidly red, supermajority, where, uh, the Af- frankly, the African-American population doesn't have the same kind of reach as one as, as they do in Georgia or other states. But let's focus on these areas that that historically, by the way, operated through this kind of balance of this by, kind of bipartisan balance. And let's find a way to re- reinvigorate, you know, democracy in these places.
1: I could not agree more.
2: Yeah, I wanted to close out by asking you both um, what you thought needed to be done in order to get us out of this space, but I think you've, you've summed it up very nicely. Um, are there any concluding thoughts that you'd like to leave us with in terms of what this episode makes you think about things that you think people should know about Tennessee or things that the national press coverage is getting wrong?
3: Well, I just think the national press and, and some of the outside folks are, are painting this like an old western movie word.
1: Yeah,
3: it's in the middle of a town, and they both draw guns and
1: good and evil
3: state Yeah, good and evil. And if you if we want to change Tennessee, it's it's gonna have to be done in a blue collar way. You use, oh, use the old euphemism: street by street, block by block, county by county, person by person strategically, but also in a kind of um, organizing, kind of coming out of a kind of a community organizing tradition. Um, and it's going to have to be done over, the, over over a long haul because, again, real votes were taken this last week, real votes that impact working people adversely. Real votes will be taken next year and then the year after and the year after. But until we can find a way to, to layer this fight in a, in a kind of prophetic way, in a kind of street by street, county by county, a block by block way, then we're just going to be at this point a year from now. Someone knows this is not, we've had a church shooting. We've had a bombing of our downtown. Yeah. We've, had, we've had a Waffle House shooting. We've had we've had five people who were shot in North Nashville, including a two-year-old girl two years ago that has gone unnoticed in this conversation about gun violence. So we're going to be at this over and over and over again until we find a way to strategically Bring together people of goodwill through this kind of what I call blue-collar kind of community organizing, and also encourage an investment in terms of resources and, and energy into, into places like Tennessee.
1: Yeah, I think there has to be a long-term commitment, and it has to be one of where it's a recognition of democracy is not easy. Democracy is not a does, – it, does, it is not a quick fix. To problems, especially because we are we are organized as a country as three thousand one hundred and forty two counties. The state of Tennessee has 95 counties, 91 are rural, 91 of those 95 counties are rural. Um, If we're actually going to find a way forward that works this century um, and that we have the systems that we need in order to be a productive society, this is going to require a long-term commitment where we don't politicize issues that do not need to be politicized. And I think that we have a violence problem not only in tennessee in the country we have a problem we have a violence problem we have to disrupt these cycles of violence racism is a form of violence that's one of many that's one of that's one of many examples of a form of violence mass shootings are forms of violence etc and so uh i think that what we're missing here in terms of the national conversation is having a conversation around our culture around violence and how we disrupt that once and for all and go forth on a path of where People feel they belong and kind of going to say who's point on neighborhood to neighborhood, um, county by county, I'd also say um, heart by heart, mind by mind. And that's another, that's another, we have to appeal to hearts and minds and not Further demonize each other, um, because it's that demonization that's again fuel towards what's making that that violent the pattern um, spin faster. Like for example, um, we had that Nashville bombing, and everybody wanted to say it was a one-off. It wasn't. It, it, it the person radicalized on conspiracy theories online. That's self radicalization, and there are a lot of people who are self radicalizing. Those are the types of conversations that we need to be having, um, and it's that type of extremism that if we don't deal with, we'll fester and we'll completely take away all of our experience with democracy, not only just here in Tennessee. Um, and I wanted to kind of go back to this point in like the movement building and the importance of civil society. Civil society is important. Rule of law is important. Academia is important. All these three different units working together um is is the health of them is it's really important and national investment in those issues um and in those uh, in those stakeholders too but I'll give you another example of what somebody said to me who came from a national organization that was wanting to watch what was happening they said we just want to bear witness we want to bear witness to what's going on in Tennessee right now it's important for us to bear witness and for me as a local Tennessean, I felt almost as if it was like somebody who was a bystander when, uh, when a fatal car crash had just happened and they wanted to stand on the side of the road and just watch the person die because they wanted to bear witness. And for me, I wanted to say, and then what? Will you feel compelled to help. Will you can feel compelled to stay? Will you feel compelled to join us in our mission to save lives, or are we here simply for entertainment? Which one is it? And I'll say this too: I don't think to look at us and just say, "Oh, well, that's just Tennessee. What did you expect?" We are part of the United States and we are a microcosm of larger national issues that are happening. If we can turn Tennessee in the right direction for everybody's sake, I think we can help turn America in a better direction than the one we're currently on.
2: I think that's a a great place to end. Thanks to both of you for sharing your
1: thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for
1: listening.